Tonight on the Scott Radley Show podcast, we have Terry Cook, and we are going to be talking about whether 16-year-olds are old enough to know right from wrong. The answer is yes, they are, and the law should reflect that. We're going to talk about the LRT. Why are the mayors in the Vancouver area all wanting out of LRT? Kind of sounds a little familiar to the debate we had around here. And sports teams, can they all work? We've got a bunch of new sports teams coming into the city of Hamilton. Can they all survive? We're going to talk about all that and lots more. The brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio on the Scott Radley Show podcast today. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Terry, there is a terrible story that's going on right now in Toronto. The story out of St. Mike's College about a hazing, they're calling it, although I think that confuses things. Hazing is Mm -hmm. a word that, who knows what it even means. I mean, hazing can be shaving someone's head or spraying them with water or doing this, I suppose. And there is a student on the football team, as I understand the story, who was... Horrible things were done to this person, enough that the police say a video taken of it is now considered child pornography. Mm -hmm. People are rightly, I think, going nuts at the fact that these 16, probably, I mean, we're looking at the age group, but it's going to be grade 10, grade 11, 15, 16, 17 year old boys are doing this and saying these kids should be, the full letter of the law should be brought down upon them. And I agree with the idea of that. But I'm looking back about three or four weeks ago here in town. I had someone on talking about this. There was a murder case, or at least a a killing of a Hamilton person by a 16-year-old. And our courts decided that because he was 16, he only got three years in prison Mm -hmm. or in wherever, three years in jail of whatever kind it is. And I'm looking at these two stories, and on one side we're saying, well, this 16-year-old is too young to understand the results, the, 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 what his actions mean. And in the other case, they're saying, no, no, at 16, you know exactly what you're doing mm-hmm. wrong. What is the age? Now you're not a sociologist, not a psychologist, but what is the age when kids, do you think, do you believe, start to know what is right and what is wrong and when we can start to hold kids responsible for these kind of egregious actions? Yeah. Well, I, you know, that's right in the strike zone. My kids are 15, 14 and 12. Do they know? They certainly know right from wrong. They, they know if you they, stab someone in the heart, that would be a bad thing. They would know what uh, bullying and sexual assault and harassment would look like. And, and I think there now is mostly enough exposure to what we expect of each other and, and uh, how we treat one another to have people well understand that. Um, that having been said, one of the ways I paid my way through university was working on juvenile juvenile detention with, with young offenders. And... Um, you know, there are kids who have never uh, experienced a framework in which anybody set any limits for them, uh, held them accountable for their behavior, and in many cases, they are the next generation victims of abuse. And so it's not entirely surprising. Victims so, of abuse or yeah, perpetrators of abuse? No, victims of abuse, almost without exception, the kids that that uh, I experienced who were uh, removed from their families at 12, 13, 14 years of age at the time uh, were kids that had come from horribly dysfunctional, mm. mostly substance abused and and uh, uh, just very difficult home lives. And, and so, you know, they were doing the best they could just to survive. That doesn't excuse horrible behavior, but it certainly is a contributing element when you start to hear these stories. And then, of course, when it's a team sport, I always ask about what's the culture in which that has occurred? Because there are folks in charge there that 
obviously have either been looking the other way or, you know, have have uh, in some way uh, allowed that kind of behavior to to become somewhat normalized. I absolutely understand what you're saying about these kids who are in these horrible situations, and I, I have not experienced that personally. Yep. But I get I get that that exists. At the same time, it is enshrined in our laws that at 16 years old, Absolutely. you don't know what is right and what is wrong. Essentially, that's what we're saying with the Youthful Offenders Act, that yep. you don't know what is right and wrong. It doesn't say if you come from a background of horrendous circumstances yep. or if you come from a perfect family. Yeah. And it seems to me that... Uh, see, I'm looking at that thinking, our kids now are way more mature than we ever were mm-hmm. at that age. Yep. Society has changed at 17 years old, at 16 years old, unless there is some outrageously unusual circumstance, you're, you're competent enough to know when you're doing something terribly wrong to someone else. Without a doubt. And, and you should suffer the consequences. That having been said, I think the question we all have to ask is, so is that a life sentence? Uh, is that something that has the potential to to return to society at some point, having paid their their uh, uh, their just due for whatever they've done? And you know, I think mostly we have, as a society, have suggested that until you're the at the age of of whatever eighteen, uh, that there is going to be some lens applied that suggests there's a there's a possibility for you to to return at some point. But it's it is uh, not without complication. Well, absolutely. And it seems that we do pick and choose, though. It we do. do. It, we do pick and choose when we want to be really saying that kids are mature enough. Because at 16, we give them the keys to a 4,000-pound bullet and say, hey, well, and, be responsible. And, and the, the, you know, the danger with discretion is always that it's not necessarily going to be applied in the way that to the, you know, to the uninformed eye that it looks reasonable, fair, or in any way sensitive to the, the impact on the victim and their family. Yeah, because I look at this story uh, today, and well, it's not today, this week, this one out of St. Michael's College in, in Toronto, and again, the outrage about this, to me, is justified, mm-hmm. and it's warranted, because yeah. in my mind, these kids are old enough to know. You know that what you're doing, when you're doing what, and I'm not going to talk about it on the air, but the stuff that we've heard, right? and I don't even know where I've heard this. Yeah, but it's deeply disturbing. Horrible stuff. Yeah. You know when you're one of those kids that you're doing something wrong. Yep. This this is no yep. longer to me even hazing. This yep. is just pure and simple criminal yep. act. Yeah, and and two things come to mind. One is the culprits should be punished to the full extent of the law and should be treated as adults because I think they, they clearly are at the point in their lives where they can exercise judgment, and they did, and it was bad. And secondly, I think for the program in the school, it's got to be just a devastating impact on on their reputation sure. and, and on the sense that it's a, a safe place to send your kids to school. Well, this is a school with a long mm-hmm. and rich and good yeah. history. Frank Mahovlich went there. Red Kelly went there. This is a place that, you know, you go back to those days. In, in the my 50s. era, Leo Routens. Le- absolutely. played it off against. Yeah, yeah. Anthony Dodds went there, it. went yeah. to Syracuse University. There's a bunch of guys yeah. that... Uh, I mean, it's it's a school that's got a uh, has had a very good mm-hmm. reputation, yep. but to the point we were talking about before, and that is the idea that I, I reject the notion that at 16 years old you are too young to know that this kind of thing is wrong. I absolutely reject that notion. I think at 16, if we're willing to give you a car, if we're willing to give you other responsibilities in society, you should you are old enough 
barring those wildly unique circumstances, you are old enough to know this stuff. And I don't see, I really believe that the Youthful Offenders Act, the age needs to be dropped because I think by 16 in our modern society, you get it. Yeah. You, you do understand. And we wouldn't disagree on that. And yet we don't, and I don't understand why. I don't understand why governments would be so, are so skittish around it. And again, as you said right off the top last segment, there are always going to be those kids that fall into the category, but we have that in adult law. Yeah, and those things can be taken into consideration when it comes to sentencing, right? Absolutely, 100%. Mitigating circumstances, but they shouldn't excuse you from the full responsibility for your action and the impact on the victim. We have adults who have less time served in prison or even get off on things mm-hmm. because of their mental capacity or whatever else. So it's not yep. like it's, if you somehow reduced it, we're going to be throwing a whole lot of kids who have difficult backgrounds into jail for bad things. Yep. I just don't understand why no one wants to do this because I, I say I reject the idea that in this time in our society that a 16 year old, if they thought this was okay, they never would have hidden. They never would have... Mm-hmm. You know, that they would have just trumpeted around the school to everybody. Some, the only reason they're caught is because somebody put it on social media, which blows my mind. Yeah. And I I, I think to the question you're asking, which is what's the political tolerance for this kind of behavior? I suspect that over time, especially with the advent of social media, when it's so immediate, people can look at it, understand how violating this kind of behavior is that, that, uh, that there'll be a move afoot to, to deal with some of the issues you're raising. And yet we saw, as I said, we saw a month or two ago, this case in Hamilton where someone just walked up to someone and stabbed him in the heart and he died and the kid got three years in jail. And there was a lot of outcry about that, but it, that was the point that said, there is nothing else we can do. Well, th- to me, that should have been one of those cases. Mm-hmm. That spurs some change and somebody somewhere in a higher political office says, wait a second, wait a second. I, like you just said, I have a 16 year old. Yep. I know what 60, I, you know, it's, I've forgotten what it was like for me, but I've seen my 16 year old and they know, mm-hmm. they know. Without a doubt. If they don't know, we're in a whole lot of trouble because boy, oh boy, think of what would go on in schools if no kid had any sense of what was right and wrong by the time they're 16. Yeah. And I don't think anybody who's a parent of teenagers would suggest that they don't understand right and wrong. It does, um, it does make me crazy again, because you've got, you've got this situation that I, I really hope that the law will crack down incredibly hard on these kids as an example of nothing else. And here's my fear about this. I think that the adults involved in this, who are the administrators, maybe not criminally, although maybe they're probably going to pay almost more of a price than the kids who did this in some ways. Now I'm not letting them off the hook. Yeah. This is a career limiting, if not ending. Ending. For for some of these people, if they knew something about this, and I'm still unclear about everything that was happening, but nonetheless, heads are going to roll somehow. Someone is going to take blame for this. And it seems to me that some of the adults who found, may have known something afterwards are going to pay more than the kids who perpetrated this crime. And that to me doesn't seem fair either. Doesn't seem right. There should be a penalty. There should be action for those who may have known something afterwards. But it's not the same. It's not the same as doing it. I agree. I mean, covering up is a bad thing. I'm not like Richard Nixon. Heaven knows. It's the cover up is, you know. Often worse than the crime. Often worse than crime. Not in this case. And uh, that having been said, um, as a former high school coach, um, you do establish a a, a culture. 
you are responsible for the level, levels of tolerance and respect mm-hmm. that your teams exhibit towards one another. And I find it hard to believe if this is more than one athlete involved as, as a perpetrator that that doesn't speak to the broader culture that was happening in that environment. It's, so, so I'm not holding the coach solely responsible, but I'd be asking some hard questions as a superintendent or the yeah. director of education in that board. It speaks to something for sure. And, and I always wonder when you get a bunch, of, there is a different sociological, and I'm not smart enough to break this down. There is a different attitude in a crowd. There's, we know that the oh. anonymity of crowds causes people to do Lots things of sociology at, on that. at times. Yep. Yep. That doesn't excuse this one though. Mm-hmm. I, I, we've got to do something at some point about this 16 year old thing because it is just it, it's letting kids off that are doing things too easily for those r- cases where they are just outrageously bad you're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML Terry Cook President and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation and I think for our next topic maybe uh, more appropriately the former chair of Hamilton what was it the former Chairman of the region of Hamilton Wentworth. Because we we heard, as I said before the break, we heard, uh, everyone remembers the day, uh, month, was it a month before the election? When the mayor of Burlington said, we want water down. We're going to snatch water down. And people went a little bit bonkers here, although a lot of people in water down said, hey, sure, okay, whatever, Mm -hmm. bring it on. Well, now Cambridge says, well, actually, we would like Flamborough. Bring Mm -hmm. Flamborough our way. You people who are living out there, I'm telling you, this must be the greatest place in the world to live. (laughs) I mean, I like where I live, but no one is lobbying to poach me left, right, Nobody coveting the Meadowlands? No one is coveting Ancaster like this. I mean, mean, maybe we should put ourselves up as a free agent. See what city will come. Maybe we can be part of Calgary down the road or something. A a satellite part of... City, but what is going on? What is all of a sudden happening? Is the, is this still? You were involved in amalgamation. Was this still? Is this still some kind of blowback to amalgamation all these years later? Or is this something else going on? Yeah, no. This this uh, happy to talk about amalgamation. I still wear the scars and occasionally wake up screaming in the middle of the night <laughs> thinking about it. Uh, but this was a mid-campaign gambit by a mayor who clearly, uh, Rick Goldring, who I thought was a, was a, is a good guy and, and was doing a decent job, but he clearly was in some political trouble. And it struck me as a bit of a Hail Mary that we're going to reopen a 20-year-old debate. Uh, he was taking a lot of static about intensification mm-hmm. in downtown Burlington. Ostensibly, this would relieve the pressure because you could- Now we've got a place to grow. You could grow into, into Waterdown. They're- They've been capped uh, with a green belt. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, my friend and squash partner, the mayor of Hamilton, reacted, as you would expect, uh, with some outrage simply because the mayor of Burlington hadn't extended the courtesy of giving him a heads up before he launched it politically and publicly. So um, I, I, I took that as a little bit of an amalgamation hangover, but it was more of a campaign tactic than, than anything that anybody would have considered as a substantive possibility. But the fact that, okay, so it happened once and I I agree with your assessment that it was a, let's throw this thing out there and see if it can Mm -hmm. gain any traction. But the fact that it's happened a second time now, what, what is, what does Flamborough have to, and I'm not being cynical or sarcastic to those people in Flamborough, it's a lovely place, but Mm -hmm. as a, as a municipality, what does Flamborough offer that's so appealing that everybody suddenly wants it? Is it just the open space? Yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure. Um, it, it, in the case of the mayor of Burlington, it was a, I think, a, a, 
a bit of a distraction play. Um, but I think the reality is Flamborough has always had competing uh, allegiances. They didn't like amalgamation. They would tell you that today. That was probably the hotbed of anti-amalgamation sentiment. They felt the least community of interest with Hamilton. Most of the folks there shopped in Burlington. Those folks who were up in the in the uh, the far corner of, of uh, Flamborough probably went into Cambridge to do their shopping. Often they would work in adjacent municipalities. They didn't feel an affinity, certainly, to downtown Hamilton. The challenge, of course, is all of the hard services over the course of the last 40 years have been provided as part of that regional government. And inevitably, if you want to go in a different direction, first of all, you've got an issue of, so are we going to find an agreeable solution? And then what's the cost? What do you Mm -hmm. owe back to the place that's built all of this infrastructure? Because frankly, in the case of of, uh, the old region of Hamilton-Wentworth, it was the industrial tax base of the city of Hamilton that built most of that suburban infrastructure. And, And so inevitably, if you're going to take your bat and ball and go somewhere else. And we as a community have paid for the roads and the sewers and all of that stuff. There's got to be a cost associated with doing that. And, and, and I can tell you that at the point of amalgamation, the province came in and did an independent financial assessment of Flamborough. And it wasn't a particularly pretty picture. So it, it in fact- In what sense? Of what it would cost to get out, you mean? Uh, in the sense of the relative strength of their tax base mm. relative to their debt and the in- infrastructure obligation. So it, it, it was not a, and, and they went at the time to Burlington and to Halton to pitch a, a change in the boundary. And in fact, the region of Halton turned them down. Because I look at this now and I think leaving Flamborough aside or water down or whatever, it, it's just an interesting concept of cities trying to poach other cities. And I'm wondering if, I mean, I don't know if this is something we should start to expect, not just here in Hamilton, but anywhere, if this is now a a thing. Let me make a prediction from 20 years out of the game, just as a student of municipal government. Uh, The province, the Ford government, recently reduced the size of Toronto Council overnight by half, and they suspended elections of regional chairs in a handful of places. And they said that they then were going to look at the 905 regions and look at a rationalization uh, because we still have in parts of Toronto at least two levels of government. This is a government that is smaller government, less politicians. And I think you are going to see some fundamental shifts both in the structure of municipal government in the GTA and potentially a move to some single-tier cities where previously we had the city of Mississauga and the region of Peel or the city of Oshawa and and the uh, the region of, uh, I'm trying to think of, it's not York, it's Durham. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I would not at all be surprised to see a rationalization across the GTA. So which coming. would mean what? would mean uh, six or seven large single-tier cities and the elimination of the regional governments in the 905. Um, I don't think that spills into Hamilton because we're already a single-tier region. Would they tinker with boundaries like Flamborough and Burlington? Uh, I suspect not, but who knows? Whether or not cities, especially the smaller suburbs, uh, the places that were pre- amalgamation that were their own town or were their own city, should we make uh, places like that free agents? If they're willing to pay more in taxes, because you pointed out that 
the city of Hamilton has paid for the roads and the sewers and the infrastructure. If you're willing to fork out and say, listen, we'll pay more, but we want to be part of Cambridge or part of Burlington or whatever, should we let them, should Hamilton just let them go and say, you want that? Fine, go ahead, but just give us the money on your way out. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's a fallacy that previously they were independent. Uh, In the two-tier system of regional government, about 75 cents on the dollar of the services provided in every municipality, suburban and city, were paid by the upper tier of the regional government. So for 40 years, we have not had truly independent Mm -hmm. area municipal governments. And I think the danger in doing that is always we have this separatist movement that inevitably separates rich from poor. And and the Canadian context has always understood that regionally we understand that we depend on one another, that we find greater efficiencies when we work together. And it's almost impossible to think about, you know, uh, balkanizing a police force or a public healthy approach or environmental issues. I mean, they cross boundaries and inevitably regions are stronger when they think regionally than when they think we're going to, you know, we're going to beggar thy neighbor by stealing a few jobs here or, you know, attracting an industry to come across the boundary. That's the stuff that has crippled American cities. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, Canadian cities would be uh, really uh, short-sighted if they thought that was the answer to our challenges. So as a guy who was in favor of amalgamation at the time. Campaigned twice for it won 66% of the vote and four of six municipal municipal governments in my second election as after I'd campaigned for it and, and moved towards that. So, yeah, I, I go ahead, ask your no, question. No, no, but I, so if it, let's say, because as I say, Waterdown, we heard people in Waterdown mm-hmm. when the Burlington wooing was going yep. on saying, we want to go to Burlington. Yep. Would it actually, when they got there, in your mind, would things be any different or any better or... Because they're not, the, the, the move was never to say, let us be independent. Let us just be watered down by ourselves. They were still going to be latched on yeah. to a big city. Would it be any different? Uh, I would I would argue that that constituency will never be happy and a boundary change is not going to solve their challenges. I think where there has always been legitimate opportunity for discussion about this is when you really separate rural from urban because the folks in Waterdown get water and sewer service from the city of Hamilton. Now, if you get out in Sheffield where you're never going to be urban serviced mm-hmm. and you don't expect the things that folks in the, the city expect, then I think there is more flexibility in terms of the boundaries. And and historically, when the regional government was formed, part of the old county of Wentworth did go into North Dumfries, which is in the Kitchener-Waterloo region. So I think that's a more... A defensible argument, and it's a more possible change. I think when you're in an urban area where the services cross the old uh, urban city suburban boundary, it's almost impossible to start monkeying around with with boundaries and changing orientations. Because just, when we hear, I don't uh, think it's going to happen. Well, when we've heard, even in the municipal election in Judy Partridge's ward and others, that we have heard that th- there seems to be this sense in uh, some corners that they want the rural independence somehow. And I'm not exactly sure, I'm with you, I'm not entirely sure I understand exactly what it is that is wanted. Yeah. But it always strikes me that they want to be, or the people, not just them either, there's different parts of this city that want to be, some people in Ancaster want to be back to the town of Ancaster or the town of Stony Creek or town of Dundas. I'm not sure how that would ever work, But even if it did, should we just allow those places to say, if you want to go, that's fine, but you've got to pay your way out. And then it's on to you. I don't know how you have a coherent functioning system of government when you 
treat it like a buffet table where you can hmm. come and go. But if you want to take your stranded debt and pay the full cost of uh, of, of what's been serviced in your municipality, I mean, go ahead and make your argument to the province because ultimately they have the authority. And what what experience would teach us about that is the province is loath to get into these things because inevitably it's a zero-sum game. Should the city of Hamilton ever be open to something like this? I if, Flam- if Flamborough really wanted to go, with, should the, or for Waterdown, should the city of Hamilton ever say, we'll give you the option? Not in my opinion. They shouldn't throw it open to a referendum or something no. like that? No, because we have to make judgments that are in the best interest of the entire regional area. And that means everybody affected has to have a say. And in my opinion, they've had a say historically. They get to elect mayors who are either pro or anti city of Hamilton. And they've pretty consistently supported folks who saw the broader vision and the need to be mutually dependent. I would suggest that when you die and when I die and probably most everybody listening dies, this argument will still be going on. Probably. I, I, don't, I had no illusions. No, I, no, but I don't when, anticipate that we will ever not hear about and, and this. And in a similar way, will we ever fully put to bed the argument of Quebec within Confederation or the fact that Newfoundland joined us in 1946 or 48 and some folks there still think that they should be independent? I mean, that, that always will be part of the tension that happens when you have to govern an area that extends beyond a little corner of a community. And uh, it's complicated. We'll leave it there. It is complicated. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Terry Cook, by the way, for those who don't know, the three of you who don't know, uh, President and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation uh, has a long history in public and private life here in Hamilton. Someone we've tried to get on this show many times, but schedules, especially with his kids' sports now, have exactly. made it difficult. So we got him now. Uh, by the way, let me reiterate, if you're calling in for the quiz question, hang tight. Will, we'll get to you as fast as you can. A bunch of lines going like crazy right now. So just hang in there. Terry, I'm loath to bring this up, but I'm going to against my own better judgment. (laughs) But I saw this. Here we go. I saw this story yesterday and I said, I'm going to ask Terry about this. I'm going to bring it up. I don't even know where we're going to go with this. Uh, Three letters that I have grown to hate with the passion of 47 fiery burning suns in the pit of my soul. (laughs) LRT. (laughs) Go ahead. The mayors across Metro Vancouver have voted indefinitely or voted to indefinitely suspend plans for a light rapid transit lines because they want now a SkyTrain because it's more modern technology and they don't want to be building LRTs into the future when the technology is old. That's a perfect setup because... What they don't know, and probably your listeners don't know, is in fact the SkyTrain was to have been built in Hamilton. How do I know that? Because my late grandfather was the general manager of the Hamilton Street Railway. He chaired the technical steering committee when the Bill Davis government offered the SkyTrain to Hamilton, fully funded as a prototype, about 1980-81. I recall. We turned it down by about a two-vote decision of our regional council at the time. I was in high school, so now I can't Now, where would that any... have gone? Do you remember where yeah, it would have it, been? it was to have run from the harbor to the airport, essentially. Uh, and and uh, I think uh, the terminus, the first terminus on the mountain was to have been Lime Ridge Mall and then ultimately with a build out to the airport over time. Which interestingly would have, wow, would that have ever changed the airport today? It would have changed fundamentally the shape of the city it, and its relative prosperity and a whole bunch of other things. And my grandpa died four years ago now at 102, hmm. uh, the oldest living season Ticket. 
<laughs> season ticket holder at the time, by the way. Um, and uh, our last conversation was about the missed opportunity in 1981, and surely to goodness we couldn't do that again. And For, and by the way, the argument in in in. Uh, 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 British Columbia right now is a mayor who eight years into a planning and property acquisition process has said we want to change technologies. And for all of the other mayors in that regional council, they say, wait a minute, we spent a hundred million dollars. We've all of our plans been predicated on one system and now you want to change uh, directions. You can't make transit decisions on a year to year basis. But for the fact that they are wanting a SkyTrain as opposed to nothing, right. their situation sounds so much like Hamilton right now with the money that's been spent on it already and all these things and the debate over it. I want to get to that in a second. I do want to go back to the SkyTrain for just a second because when we were going to do it here, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, would it have looked like a monorail almost? It would have been a raised train? There were parts parts of it that were at grade and parts that were elevated. And the, uh, the major objections always are in the elevated sections. So ironically in Vancouver, what the one mayor in question is saying is, I want it elevated. And I guarantee you, when you make that change, there will be abutting neighborhoods that will find that offensive because of sight lines and visual interruptions and a whole bunch of other things. What it does do is free up a lane or two of traffic. Mm-hmm. And, and funny, and we're not going to re-litigate the entire LRT <laughs> no, on not. this show, but I would, be, I would have been fascinated to see how that would have changed the argument. It was never really an issue here, not in this case, no. but how that would have changed the discussion in Hamilton if this was an elevated train sure. that didn't block traffic. So let me give you one other piece of history, long forgotten, which is after the system up Upper James was turned down in the early... So, sorry, it was going to go from the harbor up James? That's right. Up, okay. up, up Upper James, actually, okay. up the escarpment. Then the Bill Davis government came back and proposed an electrified system coming from Oakville to downtown Hamilton with an elevated stretch along York Boulevard. And the dynamic that ultimately had that killed, the Frank Miller government in 1985 killed it as one of their first acts of business, short-lived Frank Miller government, uh, was that they were going to tunnel under the Hamilton Cemetery. And you can well imagine how that (laughs) resonated with the good folks in in West Hamilton. Let's just tunnel under a 150-year-old cemetery. Not to mention all the families of someone who were living in there. Exactly. So that's all the transit history that's been long forgotten by most locals. But... uh, it's, it, it, is, it does boggle the mind to think of what Hamilton would look like, how different it would look like today if that had been in place. Indeed. And we always need to have some context and some historic understanding of what's happened in the past and why. But I think we also need to look forward and say, look, what are the most progressive cities in the world doing? What are those successful American and U- European cities doing? First of all, they're investing in rapid transit. Secondly, they're tightening urban boundaries and promoting smart intensification. And by and large, for cities of this size, light rail has been the best, most modern, and most tax-enhancing answer. And we don't have to look that far afield. There are lots of communities that are doing this successfully. Waterloo has had now $3 billion of new investment. Their system isn't yet operational. It will be within the next six to nine months. Ottawa in a very similar situation, where they had bus rapid transit for the last 30 years, pretty successful system. They're now replacing it with light rail because they know that's a better alternative. Okay, so you mentioned Ottawa, you mentioned Waterloo. There's also Brampton that has had this. We've heard about Vancouver now, Edmonton. Every single place that LRT, BRT, BLT, whatever it Mm -hmm. is, every single place has fought against this. It's always a fight at the start with any change in traffic pattern, any change in mode. And all of the places... But even in Waterloo, some people are still fighting, though. Well, 
it was not an issue in this election. My friend, the regional chairman, outgoing Ken Sealing, spent a lifetime planning and driving that thing, and it was not an issue. It's been resolved. They've built the thing. It's about to go into operation. And overwhelmingly, the support is there. Now, does that mean every single retailer along the line agrees or every neighbor that may have been affected by a, you know, a short-term interruption? In bar- no, that, that's part of change. You can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. And, and what I would say to you is, you mentioned Edmonton, you mentioned Calgary. None of the places that built it in the first place have ever gone backwards. They've always expanded the system, sometimes with growing pains, but inevitably, once you've tasted the success that it brings to your community, both in terms of how it moves people, but also in terms of how it enhances your tax base, people don't go the other way. But it's always kicking, screaming to get there. And that, too, is the price of leadership. But I I wonder about that because I can't, I'm sure there are places where it exists. I just can't think of one where it hasn't been a massive fight. I can't think of a place, and again, I'm I'm sure the place exists, but I can't think of one, certainly not in Canada, that none come to mind, that Um, this has not been a massive, massive fight to go through. Yeah, it it wasn't particularly in Calgary. It was Ralph Klein, uh, little Ralphie's train at the time. There was some controversy associated with it. Pretty quickly, it was embraced and then built out. And it continues to be supported and expanded in that community and has arguably been very successful. The place that I've been that I think there was a minimum of pushback was Portland, Oregon, which has a very well-developed and comprehensive both light rail system and, a, and an aerial tram system to get up to the college on the uh, on the escarpment. Um, there are lots of places that have done this. Inevitably, there's a great debate at the front end. And then once you start to operationalize the thing on balance, people embrace it. I think that'll be the case here. When you described a few moments ago the SkyTrain proposal from mm-hmm. Hamilton years and years ago, and again, I, I'm looking <laughs> retroactively, but I'm thinking to myself, I, and I meant what I said about how it would have changed the city at the time. Fundamentally. Fundamental change. I, I'm, I'm wondering if the arguments that we, would have ha- that we have had in Hamilton over the last number of years would have been different if we had a line that was more bisecting of the entire city or more more tentacles into the entire city rather than yes. just the downtown. But when you look at the entirety of the plan, everybody's focused on the east-west corridor, which is it, tomorrow would be the seventh busiest light rail system in North America because of the amount of ridership in that system. The build-out then becomes a number of different key nodes across the region. But you always start at the point of highest density, biggest use. And nobody builds an overall rapid transit system in five or 10 years. You build it over the course of generations. This thing ultimately will expand and enhance bus service in all parts of the region region, and will ultimately involve rapid transit connections to the airports and ultimately to other suburban communities in this region. But you gotta start somewhere. Will will future provincial governments and federal governments, though, not at some point with what you're saying. Okay, so this is our starting point. Mm -hmm. We're going to build from here. But will certain, will governments down the road not eventually just say, you know what, screw it. This is way more effort than it's worth. And all it is, is blowback against these ideas. No, because ultimately, when you look at the, the revenue generation that comes from the enhanced tax base, it is a, it is a financial win for the province of Ontario. And that's why the province of Alberta has continued to support in large measure expansion in Calgary and Edmonton. That's why the province of British Columbia has done similarly with, with Vancouver SkyTrain system. And that's why the TTC 
and, and Go Transit have enjoyed continuing provincial support because ultimately they're a hell of a lot cheaper than trying to build out additional highway capacity, which you can never build enough road capacity with induced demand to actually allow people to be relieved of gridlock. The only way out of this is better land use planning and more rapid transit for all of us. They're, we're adding 100,000 people a year to the GTA in Hamilton. There isn't, we're not widening the 403 or the QEW or the 407. That just is not a way that's going to solve our problems. Of all the places I am shocked though, that there is LRT blowback, it is in Vancouver. I I mean, I thought that, because again, you talk about Portland, Vancouver has a sensibility that is similar enough to Portland. Portland is its own little, very uber liberal green world. Vancouver's similar enough to that. I thought for sure if there was a place where this was going to be pulled into the breast and and hugged tightly that it would be Vancouver, but no. This is a single suburban light rail extension on a broader system. Vancouver has built out and invested heavily in rapid transit. They periodically have huge referenda around can we pay more or should we pay more for rapid transit and that always gets some blowback. But Vancouver is, if anything, the most progressive city around land use planning and transit, uh, probably in Canada, maybe in North America. So they've done a lot of things well. Out of necessity. Out of necessity. Or they have no space left and they... The, the geography, just like the Bay Area, San Francisco, they just... <laughs> you, you can't you're go not any gonna, further left. You're not going to road build your way out of that situation. Yeah. No, for sure. Uh, it's an interesting one though. Again, you can go look it up if you want online, some of these stories, uh, which will give a little more detail. But when I read this, uh, it was, you could, in a lot of these stories, you could replace the name Surrey with Hamilton and boy, it sounded like what's going on here with a lot of, with these mayors basically saying we've spent millions and millions. Let's start in a different system. We want to do something different. Yeah. Um, it's all fun ag- and games until somebody agree, loses an eye. Well, agree <laughs> or disagree. I mean, whether you love LRT idea or whether you don't love LRT idea, the reason we bring it up today, the reality is this is not unique to Hamilton. This is a fight. This is a debate that is going on lots of different places. Ultimately, it seems it always gets built, mm-hmm. which I find very interesting that no one ever seems to defeat these things. Ultimately, they seem to always happen. I would say on balance, it sometimes takes a generation from conception and political debate to actually build out. But yes, I would agree. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Country Music Awards were on TV. Now, I'm not a big country guy. In fact, oftentimes country music makes my fillings buzz. (laughs) Um, Not exactly a, you know, my daughter loves country music. I know a lot of people who do. That's fine. I'm all for you people loving your country music, but it's just not my thing. But interestingly, ratings were way off this year for this. And one of the things that is being pointed at as a possibility for why is because of a poll that had come out last month, which said 43% of, of American, now this is an American poll, 43% of people nationwide said they have become less likely to watch live entertainment shows, award shows generally, mm-hmm. because of the politics that is involved. They want to watch an event. They want to watch the Academy Awards, the Grammys, the <coughs> CMAs, whatever else, as an escape not as an extension of endless political discourse and comments and everything else. Does that, does that resonate with you? Does that make sense that people, that this is, whether this was the reason these award show numbers were down, because a lot of them are, 
Does it make sense that this is the kind of place where people say enough? Well, I, I especially think that constituency, right? Country music in the U.S., I've got to believe, will skew towards Southern. the right, Southern, yep. Republican, Trump. And I think, by and large, the voices from entertainment, including country music uh, performers, have been more critical than than supportive. And I, I can see that that would offend a big part of that constituency. And I think there are lots of people who just think, you know, I I want to listen to your music. Um, that doesn't qualify you to tell me who to vote for or how to educate my kids or how to do anything else. You're not a role model. You're somebody that I enjoy listening mm. to. Because we're seeing this, these numbers, not necessarily the, this was a big drop, but we're seeing that the Academy Awards is down, the Grammys mm-hmm. are down, all these things are down. Yep. And this has been a suggestion that a lot of people have made is when you politicize everything, mm-hmm. You immediately cut off the, I mean, the American election is almost 50-50. The electorate is almost 50-50. And if you turn something into a political, whether it's pro-Republican, anti-Republican, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, either way, that's 50% of your audience that is saying, no, thank you. Yeah, except so much music has its roots in protest and social change. And I don't know how you ultimately separate the two. And increasingly, we see the same thing with athletes and their Twitter accounts. They're... They're vocal, uh, often they're informed, they're articulate, and they have a platform. Um, so I don't think it's going to change. Now, does it drive viewers away? Should it change? Ma- ma- uh, you know, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I love listening to, as a basketball guy, Steve Kerr I'll listen to all day. He has a political bent, highly informed, has had a fascinating life story. He has a message that is grounded in life experience and education. I, that, I, I don't begrudge him that. I may not always agree with him and his politics, but I think it's interesting that a guy who's a highly successful coach is multidimensional and is prepared to share that. And I think increasingly you see athletes that are of the same bent and, and entertainers. And I'm a Bruce Springsteen guy. He's very always, political. He's always been a very political guy. On the flip side, Michael Jordan famously would not get involved with issues. LeBron similarly has LeBron been. LeBron more. M- most more, more Tiger recently. Woods, Tiger yeah. Woods, who's got yeah. his own problem or has had yeah. his own problems, but he yeah. has avoided this stuff. Yeah. And it, it is interesting that most people, most basketball fans of, regardless of your political mm-hmm. affiliation, look at Michael Jordan and go, I yeah. like Michael Jordan. Same with Tiger Woods. I mean, but for the other stuff that was yeah. going on. Yeah. It's an interesting debate for me about whether or not if I was an athlete, if I was an entertainer like that, yeah. do I want to take a political stand knowing that I'm potentially hacking off half of my audience? There's no question. And and I think with black athletes in particular, there's a higher expectation uh, from the black community when things like Black Lives Matter that they will not remain silent. And I think you could argue that some of the people like Michael Jordan that have been politically agnostic, they've, they've probably paid a bit of a price because most of that constituency, not just the athletic con- constituency, but the, the roots of, of where they've come from, would expect them to be vocal on social justice issues and not just, you know, uh, a duck when, when tough stuff happens. Do the producers or the executive producers or networks of shows, whether it's an award show or whether, mm-hmm. let's say that, it, I mean, Roseanne, for example, mm-hmm. uh, is an example of someone who blew up her career with some comments mm-hmm. recently. That show's ratings have gone right into the tank without her. And you look and you go, wait a second, if I'm the executive producer and I see what can happen to my investment, mm-hmm. do the networks and the executive producers have a right to tell their stars or to even maybe write it into their contracts to say, you are an entertainer. We are paying you 
boatloads of money to entertain, steer clear of this other stuff. Yeah, I, I guess I would make a distinction between politically informed discourse and weighing in on tough issues and making racist, xenophobic, misogynistic Which statements. Which is what she... Yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, if, if that's the way you want to behave and you're a public figure, you will pay a price for it. Should your producers worry about that? If, you, if you've got a history of erratic behavior, probably. But we have seen people on both sides of the political spectrum pay a price. Yes, we have. And and not just with those racist or xenophobic kind of things. Take a knee. Take a knee. Yep. Right? So that there's one example of Mm -hmm. someone whose career has been affected. For sure. Um, We have seen people on the right who face the fury of those Mm -hmm. who hate Trump and they say, you can't take that position. We won't support you. Like if I was an executive producer, if I'm putting all this money and this upfront capital and and advertising and everything into a show, I am putting it in contracts to say as for the next, whatever number of years you're on this show, Mm -hmm. shut up. Talk about the show, talk about your kids, talk about the other shows that you like on TV. I don't want to see you on CNN or Fox or MSNBC spouting off political opinions. Yeah, I get that. And and it is a, you know, it's always going to be a judgment call. I think the modern reality with athletes and entertainers having a multitude of platforms to communicate directly outside of the mainstream media is I think you're going to have a very tough time controlling that. The only thing you can do is hope to infuse some judgment and, and some common sense in people who have the benefit of that big platform to preach from. If someone, and again, we're talking, we started this with an awards show with Country Music Awards, which interestingly wasn't political. I didn't watch it, but mm-hmm. I'm told was not political in the least. Right. They avoided politics almost like the plague. Mm-hmm. And, but this poll is saying it's because people are anticipating it that they right. may not have watched. If you are the producer of one of these shows though, and let's say that Terry Cook is a regular contributor, someone who gives out awards often because you're good mm-hmm. on stage or whatever, mm-hmm. and you get up there and you just have a political comment that, again, cuts off half the audience. If I then say, you know what, you're not coming back for my next show, do I have that right or is that censorship then? Absolutely. Which one? You have a judgment. You 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 get to make that judgment. As a, it's a commercial enterprise. If my views have offended the audience that makes you commercially viable, of course you have that, that but right. But would that not just be then thrown out as censorship? That you're just l- stopping me from I've, saying what I've I... I've got lots of other outlets that can communicate my message and you don't owe me anything. So in my opinion, no. N- nobody's guaranteed a platform in the mainstream media. Uh, if you made outrageous comments that offended the Hamilton Spectator or CHML, um, particularly if they diminished your audience dramatically, I suspect there wouldn't be a lot of uh, civil courts in this land that would give you an extensive hearing. You know, you'd <laughs> you'd be at the gym for an extra two hours yeah. on Friday night. <laughs> no, well, that's true. I- I look at this though, and I think if you were to say to Terry Cook, as an example, you can't do this, and Terry Cook goes on Twitter and says, I've been banned, yeah. now you're going to have all the other people supporting you saying, well, I'm not speaking either. Yeah. You get yourself into, it is a tough spot, I'm it, saying, it for is. some of these, but no one's feeling too sympathetic for the big corporations, but it's a tough spot for some of them. I, I get that, but we all deal with reasonable limitations in whatever professional role we play. One of the limitations in the role I play running a a large foundation is I can't be overtly partisan. I can't criticize, get involved with a partisan political campaign, separate people based on their ideology. I I have to be mindful of that. 
I have a highly political background. I spent a number of mm-hmm. years, ran a number of elections. In some cases, that seems like cruel and unusual punishment, but it's what I signed up for, and it allows me to do all of the good things that I get to do running a great institution like the Hamilton Community Foundation. I, I don't think that's an unreasonable limitation on, on my activity. I think that's part and parcel of the kind of work that I've chosen. Yeah. It's a, I mean, now, I don't know if that's in your contract, or is that an no, unspoken thing? That's an expectation. Yeah. It, last thing, we're going to move on from this. Mm-hmm. If you were a wildly successful artist, musician, whatever else. I mean, I'm talking about someone who's at the very top of the game. Would you go political or would you say, you know what? There's a big audience. I would prefer not to irritate half of them. I want to be an artist, an entertainer and entertain them and let them have their political arguments elsewhere. Or would you say, you know what? No, I would rather have only half the audience but be true to what I really believe. Yeah, and I I don't think in this day and age that you can separate the political philosophy, the views of people who are dynamic artists and entertainers from the reality of what they do. They do have to harness their political capital carefully. You don't want to be a flavor of the week, flavor of the month. You better pick the big things that really matter and recognize that you may pay some commercial price for expressing those views. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I got an email today, a press release today, yesterday, I don't know, telling me about uh, season tickets are now available for the new basketball team that is starting in Hamilton, the Mike Morreale League that yep. uh, is going. Uh, there is My a, buddy Joe Razzo's involved. He is. We there. started our coaching career together at Westdale High School right across the street uh, many, many years ago. And he has followed you in the hair department now. Joe, He's shaved down to the wood now. Joe, Joe told me he could make a living in Canada coaching basketball, and I told him that was nutty, but uh, lo and behold, he did. So you got the new basketball league opening. Yeah. You have, uh, there was a draft this week for this new professional soccer league that's starting yep. up in Canada. We have the Ticats, we have the Bulldogs, Go we Tabbies. have McMaster, Mohawk, Redeemer, we've got the Hamilton Cardinals baseball. Yep. These these cannot all survive, can they? No, probably not. There'll be some attrition, but it it is a, I think, more robust sports market than it was 10 or 15 years ago. You're, lo- you're old enough to remember the Skyhawks, so mm-hmm. we have been down With this Ron path. With Ron Foxcroft's team, Indeed. yep. Exactly. Um, and, and and it's a basketball town. I mean, so as much as I'm a Ticat lover and excited about Sunday and whether or not our friend Jeremiah Masoli is going to show up or not and play as well as he did last year. Um, I, I think there's room in the ecosystem for more than one great program. I happen to love because I got a kid playing volleyball, the Mac volleyball program. Dave Preston's got to be the best coach, I think, in the in the country. Agree. Year in and yep. in, no, in agreed. year out. And, and there are lots of different affordable opportunities to families to expose their kids to great high-quality product. Now, can you make a living and a business out of all of those things? Probably not. See, the word lots is the one that concerns mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Because we're not Toronto. As much as, like, uh, Toronto's not the be-all and end-all. Yeah. Toronto's not utopia. That's Flamborough. We made, we made that clear <laughs> earlier. Uh, Toronto's not the utopia, but they do have enough people that if you have enough, a lot and of enough programs. corporate support. That you can make a go, but I'm uh, I'm worried for I don't know what I'm worried for well, something something I don't think is going to be able to survive this because there's only so much dollars there's only so much interest there's only so much uh, so many hours in a day. Uh, but I I also think the model has changed, and as much as I love the Raptors and I'm a basketball guy, frankly I got to take a mortgage payment out to take my kid to a that's game. That's true. 
If I go to Same Mac, with yep. if I go to Mac to watch Teresa Burns' high quality women's basketball program, I'm in and out with five kids and a snack for under a hundred bucks. And you know, you can find free on street parking. That that's a whole different proposition for middle class families than kind of what it costs you to go to see the Leafs or see the Raptors. And I I think again, Hamilton is a market that can support good high quality sports but it's never going to be one in my opinion that will support a you know an NHL team. Well, you are I know I have seen you many times at Mac games. You're a big supporter of McMaster. Love the program. Uh you make a case right now for why this should be a place that people go to a lot. Mm-hmm. They do draw some crowds mostly for provincial or national right. championships. If you were there last Friday to see RMC, who frankly were allowed, or I guess it was Queens on Friday, RMC on Saturday. Yeah, it was mostly friends and family. Uh, and and that having been said, these are, you know, the, the program at Mac, the volleyball program is the best in the country. So why does Mac not, why have they never been able, even if they've had, they've had six straight years of being in volleyball, men's volleyball, the provincial championship. They've I had think, good. I think nine, isn't it? But Six straight. Lot. Okay, six no, straight. No, no, six straight. All right. Uh, nine, I think it's nine in the last 11 right. or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, they're there. We're talking uh, UCLA, John Wooden numbers for God's sake. We are. No, yeah. no, absolutely. This yeah. is the dominant and volleyball in Canada. Volleyball is the one sport. We've talked about this in the show many times. Yeah. Volleyball is the one sport in Canadian university sports, team sport, mm-hmm. that you can compete with the top American schools. Absolutely. And beat the top American schools, which they do consistently. Yeah. And yet you're right. Unless it's a special event. Mm-hmm not drawn. The basketball team, they usually have good basketball teams. You mentioned Teresa Burns. Yeah. Why Why has it never seemed to work? Even football, they get okay crowds. Yeah. yeah. And, and I would argue they don't do a great job building the town-gown relationship. A building lot, the town? Town-gown relationship. Okay. Like there's always been a divide in this community between working class, especially North and East End families and a university that seems somewhat remote. I would give Patrick Dean credit because he's tried to rebuild that. They don't spend, spend a lot on marketing and, and public awareness. And at the end of the day, I think increasingly people are sitting at home and uh, they're on their screens and watching TV because it's more comfortable. And I think that is the challenge. You actually have to get people to experience that firsthand, what what it's like to sit four rows behind and watch a... McMaster team beat Ohio State in volleyball or watch, you know, watch Carlton beat, you know, any number mm-hmm. of Division One basketball programs in the U.S. This is high quality stuff available close to home. And you're right. We have not done a great job at building that audience. But if you have not been able to do it with the school, with the teams that Mac has had, and again, I'll use the volleyball team mm-hmm. only as an example. Now, volleyball is not the number one sport in the city, but it's growing. There's a lot of kids playing volleyball now. Yeah. And I chalk up an awful lot of that to the McMaster success over the years. But you still, as you say, the national championships, big crowds, Mm -hmm. provincial championships, big crowds. And they bring in Ohio State, big big crowds. crowds. But by and large, week in and week out. mm, If that has not worked and those tickets are cheap, that doesn't cost much to go to. I don't even know if they charge kids. I'm not even sure. Yeah, they do, but it's not much. It's not much. Yeah. So you've got all these kids that are playing these sports in the mm-hmm. city, and there are lots of kids playing basketball, lots playing volleyball. They can't make. How is a new professional basketball league that's going to charge more? How is a new soccer league that is going to charge more? Yeah. Not tons, but more. How are they going to possibly make a go of it? Especially when they have to pay their athletes. Right. And and uh, so. I think volleyball is a developing market and and historically the participation levels here and the level of excellence has not been what 
would be reflected by the MAC program. So I think it's a longer bill. Mm-hmm. I think in basketball and football in particular, those are two sports that this city has excelled at for many years. And we haven't, A, managed to keep many of the, most of the best athletes here over over time. And secondly, we have not broadened the audience. So, you know, I think that is the conundrum for university officials and coaches and families of, of players. They look at that and say, you know, even in our own backyard, unless it's a national or provincial championship, folks don't turn out. And I don't, I don't have an answer for that. Yeah, I love I'm, it. I go take my kids. We enjoy the experience. I wouldn't trade that for any number of professional sport experiences I've had over the years. And you know, there've been some great experiences I had there. But uh, I love being close to home and going to see athletes that I can actually say hello to when I'm on the campus. And uh, they're actually human beings that are approachable. Excel in the classroom and on the field. But Here, here's here's my concern and. I think, like, I would love for both this new basketball team, mm-hmm. uh, the Hamilton Honey Badgers. Yep. And questionable I would, choice of name. But, uh, and, okay. Well, and the uh, Forge FC, another, mm-hmm. I think, questionable. Uh, Hamilton FC seems right. to me that it would have yep. been, anyway. Uh, I would love for them both to succeed. The problem I have with it is, or the concern I have with it is, when you go to Mac, it's a nice, small, Burge Gym is a mm-hmm. small, intimate place. When you put two th- whatever it can hold, people, 2,000 people in there for the national championship, it's loud, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now you put a couple thousand people in Tim Hortons Field for a soccer game, oh, or a couple a thousand people in First Ontario Center for a yeah. basketball yeah. game. It's an awful experience. <sighs> yeah. It, it, th- this is a tough, mm-hmm. tough sell. I hope they can figure out a way to make it work. I just, yeah. I'm I'm trying to contain my skepticism. I'd love to see it fly. I just don't know how it's going to. Yeah, I, I, I think the jury is out. That having been said, I had some really good experiences. My buddy R- Joe Razzo was coaching in Niagara last year. Yes. Went down to a number of their events. With the NBL. That 5,000-seat arena was just perfect. No, but see, that's a perfect size. It is. That's a good size. And mm-hmm. actually, if you want to see something outstanding, I don't know what date it is. It might be tomorrow night. Uh, Brock University every year yeah. has the, they have a game, a basketball game at the uh, Meridian Center against... Carlton, right? No, against Ryerson oh, tomorrow. Ryerson. Okay. And they have the hockey game, the Steel Blade Classic that they always play against Guelph earlier in the year. If you want to see ever Canadian University sports... That would be the game to go to. They fill the place. It's right. wild. It's yeah. loud. It's crazy. It's um, they they have done an amazing job. We got to go to a break here, but just before we did, I did want to mention someone that you knew. Your dad, I think you said, knew or you coached with Dennis Griffin, who was a oh, legend yeah. in Hamilton High School football. Passed away today. Yeah. So Dennis was a family friend. Uh, he coached against my dad. Was the football coach both at HCI and at uh, Westmount for many years, and had a whole bunch of city championship games against Dennis's team and Dennis was both a gentleman a very successful coach and a teacher and a great guy and it's a big big loss for the Hamilton sports and football community we've had a lot of those too many of these lately too many of these legends of the cities especially the coaching ranks and stuff have been going lately so yes that's uh anyone who has been involved in Hamilton football would know that name Dennis Griffin so the Scott Radley show weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML